once upon a time, in a far, 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 far away land, there lived three radio show hosts. Three radio show hosts that also happened to be friends by the name of Bobby, Jennifer, and Emily. They, all three, had a love for radio, had a love for stories, had a love for music. When they combined their powers, they created a show that you all have come to know and love by the name of Dream Infringement! That's right. This is Dream Infringement. And that fantastic fairy tale that you just heard is not a fairy tale, but a true story. Yep, that's real life, y'all. But today, uh, our theme is short stories. Yep. We have procured for you some short stories that we all love, and we're going to read them to you with the help of Radio Magic. We are going to deliver some very interesting, thought-provoking, imagination-inspiring stories <laughs> from our mouths to your ears. Yeah, and before we get started, we just want to give a sincere thanks to everyone who contributed to our pledge drive. It was an awesome, amazing, successful, incredible pledge drive, and that's all thanks to you our listeners. Thank you so, 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 so much. And even though our pledge drive has come to its end and we await our next pledge drive, you're still welcome to donate in any way that you would like monetarily or with time by volunteering at KSKQ. But if you'd like to donate monetarily, money, you can call us at 541-482-3999. Or you can hop on over to kskq.org and click the donate button. It might even say donate now. I can't remember because I have a terrible memory these days. Yes, she does, but that's okay. I make up for it. We're married. So without much further ado about nothing, here are some short stories. Enjoy. This short story is called A Loint of Paw by Isaac Asimov. There was no question that Monty Stein had, through clever fraud, stolen better than $100,000. There was also no question that he was apprehended one day after the statute of limitations had expired. It was his manner of avoiding arrest during that interval that brought on the epoch-making case of the State of New York versus Montgomery Harlow Stein, with all its consequences. It introduced law to the fourth dimension. For, you see, after having committed the fraud and possessed himself of the hundred grand plus, Stein had calmly entered a time machine, of which he was in illegal possession, and set the controls for seven years and one day in the future. Stein's lawyers put it simply, hiding in time was not fundamentally different from hiding in space. If the forces of law had not uncovered Stein in the seven-year interval, that was their hard luck. The district attorney pointed out that the statute of limitations was not intended to be a game between the law and the criminal, 
It was a merciful measure designed to protect a culprit from indefinitely prolonged fear of arrest. For certain crimes, a defined period of apprehension of apprehension, so to speak, was considered punishment enough. But Stein, the DA insisted, had not experienced any period of apprehension at all. Stein's lawyer remained unmoved. The law said nothing about measuring the extent of a culprit's fear and anguish. It simply set the, a time limit. The DA said that Stein had not lived through the limit. Defense said that Stein was seven years older now than at the time of the crime and had therefore lived through the limit. The DA challenged the statement and the defense produced Stein's birth certificate. He was born in 2973. At the time of the crime, 3004, he was 31. Now, in 3011, he was 38. The DA shouted that Stein was not physiologically 38, but 31. Defense pointed out freezingly that the law, once the individual was granted to be mentally competent, recognized solely chronological age, which could be obtained only by subtracting the date of birth from the date of now. The DA, growing impassioned, swore that if Stein were allowed to go free, half the laws on the books would be useless. Then change the laws, said the defense, to take time travel into account. But until the laws are changed, let them be enforced as written. Judge Neville Preston took a week to consider and then handed down his decision. It was a turning point in the history of law. It was almost a pity then that some people suspect Judge Preston to have been swayed in his way of thinking by the irresistible impulse to phrase his decision as he did. For that decision in full was, a niche in time saves Stein. And this <laughs> short story was published in a magazine, so there is an author's note which says, If you expect me to apologize for this, you little know your man. I consider a play on words the noblest form of wit, so there. And then there's a little part underneath that uh, that says, That's too punny. Do you remember the definition of trope that was given in a previous issue? If you said a trope is a device that shifts the meaning of words, you score. Within the many categories of tropes are puns, plays on any two words that are similar in sound but different in meaning. In this story, Asimov employs a pun for his ending. Puns often get a bad rap as low humor, but some of the best English writers adored using them, especially Shakespeare in Romeo and Juliet, for instance. Romeo suffers a vile death. Get it? The star-crossed lover drank a vial of poison. <laughs> there are special classifications of puns. For instance, there's something called a paragram. That's when the wordplay involves a switcheroo of one or more letters in a word. For an example of a paragram, look at the headline in this very box. So, that was the short story. A Loint of Paw by As Isaac Asimov. This short story is by the author Evelyn Waugh, and it is called On Guard. Millicent Blade had a notable head of naturally fair hair. She had a docile and affectionate disposition and an expression of face which changed with lightning rapidity from amiability to laughter, and from laughter to respectful interest. But the feature which, more than any other, 
endeared her to sentimental Anglo-Saxon manhood was her nose. It was not everybody's nose. Many prefer one with greater body. It was not a nose to appeal to painters, for it was far too small and quite without shape. A mere dab of putty without apparent bone structure. A nose which made it impossible for its wearer to be haughty or imposing or astute. It would not have done for a governess or a cellist or even a post office clerk. But it suited Miss Blade's book perfectly. For it was a nose that pierced the thin surface crest of the English heart to its warm and pulpy core. A nose to take the thoughts of English manhood back to its school days, to the doughy-faced urchins on whom it had squandered its first affections. Three Englishmen in five, it is true, grow snobbish about these things in later life and prefer a nose that makes more show in public. But two in five is an average with which any girl of modest fortune may be reasonably content. Hector kissed her reverently on the tip of this nose. As he did so, his senses reeled, and in momentary delirium, he saw the fading light of the November afternoon. You will wait for me, won't you? Yes, darling. And you will write? Yes, darling, she replied more doubtfully. Sometimes. At least I'll try. Writing is not my best thing, you know. I shall think of you all the time, out there, said Hector. Oh, it's going to be terrible. Miles of impassable wagon tracks, blinding sun, mosquitoes, hostile natives, work from dawn until sunset, single-handed, against the forces of nature, fever, cholera. But soon, I shall be able to send for you to join me. Yes, darling. It's bound to be a success. I've discussed it all with Beckthorpe. That's the chap who's selling me the farm. You see, the crop has failed every year so far. He's stuck it out nine years. Well, if you work it out mathematically, Beckthorpe says in three years one's bound to strike the right crop. I can't quite explain why, but it is like roulette and all that sort of thing, you see. Yes, darling. Hector gazed at her little shapeless, mobile button of a nose and was lost again. Later that evening, he dined with Beckthorpe, and as he dined, he grew more despondent. <sighs> Tomorrow this time, I shall be at sea, he said. Cheer up, old boy, said Beckthorpe. Hector filled his glass and gazed with growing distaste around the reeking dining room of Beckthorpe's club. I say, you know, I've been trying to work it out. It was in three years you said the crop was bound to be right, wasn't it? That's right, old boy. Well, I've been through the sum, and it seems to me that it might be eighty-one years before it comes right. No, no, old boy. Three or nine, or at the very most, twenty-seven. Are you sure? Quite. Good. You know, it's awful leaving Millie behind. Suppose it is eighty-one years before the crop succeeds. It's a devil of a time to expect a girl to wait. Some other blighter might turn up, if you see what I mean. Tell you what, old boy. You ought to give her something. 
I'm always giving her things. She either breaks them, loses them, or forgets where she got them. You must give her something. She will always have to buy her. Something that will last. 81 years? Well, say 27. Something to remind her of you. I could give her a photograph. But I might change a bit in 27 years. Oh, oh that would be most unsuitable. Photograph wouldn't do at all. I know what I'd give her. I'd give her a dog. Dog? Healthy puppy. That was over distemper and looked like living a long time. She might even call it Hector. Would that be a good thing, Backthorpe? Best possible, old boy. So next morning, before catching the boat train, Hector hurried to one of the mammoth stores of London and was shown the livestock department. I want a puppy. Eh, sir, any particular sort? Uh, one that will live a long time. 81 years, or 27 in the least. The man looked doubtful. We have some fine, healthy puppies, of course, he admitted. But none of them carry a guarantee. Now for his longevity, you want it. Might I recommend a tortoise? I, they live to an extraordinary age and are very safe in traffic. No, it must be a pup. Or a parrot? No, no, pup. I would prefer one named Hector. They walked together past monkeys and kittens and cockatoos to the dog department, which even at this easy hour had attracted a small congregation of rapt worshippers. There were puppies of all varieties in wire-fronted kennels, ears cocked, tails wagging, noisily soliciting attention. Rather wildly, Hector selected a poodle, and as the salesman disappeared to fetch him his change, he let down for a moment's intense communion with the beast of his choice. He gazed deep into the sharp little face, avoided a sudden snap, and said with profound solemnity, You are to look after Millie, Hector. See that she doesn't marry anyone until I get back. And the pup Hector waved his plume tail. Millicent came to see him off, but negligently went to the wrong station. It would not have mattered, however, for she was twenty minutes late. Hector and the poodle hung about the barrier looking for her, and not until the train was already moving did he bundle the animal into Beckthorpe's arms with instructions to deliver him at Millicent's address. That evening, as the ship pitched and rolled past the Channel Lighthouses, he received a radiogram. Miserable to miss you. Went Paddington like idiot. Thank you, thank you for sweet dog. I love him. Father minds dreadfully, longing to hear about fawn. Don't fall for ship siren. All love, Millie. In the Red Sea, he received another. Beware sirens. Puppy bit man called Mike. After that, Hector heard nothing of Millicent, except for a Christmas card, which arrived in the last days of February. Generally speaking, Millicent's fancy for any particular young man was likely to last four months. It depended on how far he had gotten that time, whether the process of extinction was sudden or protracted. In the case of Hector, her affection had been due to diminish at about the time she had become engaged to him. It had been artificially prolonged during the succeeding three weeks, during which he made strenuous, infectiously earnest efforts to find employment in England. 
it came to an abrupt end with his departure for Kenya. Accordingly, the duties of the puppy, Hector, began with his first days at home. He was young for the job, and wholly inexperienced. It is impossible to blame him for his mistake in the matter of Mike Boswell. This was a young man who had enjoyed a wholly unromantic friendship with Millicent since she first came out. He had seen her fair hair in all kinds of light. He had seen her nose uplifted in all kinds of weather, had even on occasion playfully tweaked it with his finger and thumb, and had never for one moment felt remotely attracted by her. But the puppy Hector could hardly be expected to know this. All he knew was that two days after receiving his commission, he observed a tall and personable man of marriageable age who treated his hostess with the sort of familiarity which meant only one thing. The two young people were having tea together. Hector watched for some time from his place on the sofa, barely stifling his growls. A climax was reached when, in the course of some barely intelligible backchat, Mike leaned forward and patted Millicent on the knee. It was not a serious bite, a mere snap. In fact, but Hector had small teeth as sharp as pins. He swore, wrapped his hand in a handkerchief, and at Millicent's entreaty revealed three or four minute wounds. Millicent spoke harshly to Hector and tenderly to Mike, and hurried to her mother's medicine cupboard for a bottle of iodine. Now, no Englishman, however phlegmatic, can have his hand dabbed with iodine without momentarily, at any rate, falling in love. Mike had seen the nose countless times before, but that afternoon, as it was bowed over his scratched thumb, and as Millicent said, Am I hurting terribly? As it was raised toward him, and as Millicent said, There, now it shall be all right. Mike suddenly saw it transfigured, as its devotee saw it, and from that moment until long after the three months of attention which she accorded him, he was Millicent's besotted suitor. The pup Hector saw all this and realized his mistake. Never again, he decided, would he give Millicent the excuse to run for the iodine bottle. He had, on the whole, an easy task, for Millicent's naturally capricious nature could, as a rule, be relied upon, unaided, to drive her lovers into extremes of irritation. Moreover, she had come to love the dog. Hector achieved a technique of dealing with Millicent's young men. He no longer growled at them or soiled their trousers. That merely resulted in his being turned from the room. Instead, he found it increasingly easy to usurp the conversation. Tea was the most dangerous time of day, for then Millicent was permitted to entertain friends in her sitting room. Accordingly, though he had a constitutional preference for pungent, meaty dishes, Hector heroically simulated a love of lump sugar. Having made this apparent at whatever cost to his digestion, it was easy to lead Millicent on to an interest in tricks. He would beg and trust lie down as though dead. When tricks failed, Hector would demand to be let out of the door. The young man would be obliged to interrupt himself to open it. Once on the other side, Hector would scratch and whine for readmission. In moments of extreme anxiety, Hector would affect to be sick. 
He would stretch out his neck, retching noisily, till Millicent snatched him up and carried him to the hall, where the floor, paved in marble, was less vulnerable. But by that time a tender atmosphere had been shattered, and one wholly prejudicial to romance created in its place. This series of devices, spaced out through the afternoon and tactfully obtruded, distracted young man after young man and sent them finally away, baffled and despairing. Every morning Hector lay on Millicent's bed while she took her breakfast and read the daily paper. This hour from 10 to 11 was sacred to the telephone, and it was then that the young men with whom she had danced overnight attempted to renew their friendship and make plans for the day. At first, Hector sought, not unsuccessfully, to prevent these assignations by entangling himself in the wire, but soon a subtler and more insulting technique suggested itself. He pretended to telephone, too. Thus, as soon as the bell rang, he would wag his tail and cock his head on one side, in a way he had learned was engaging. Millicent would begin her conversation, and Hector would wriggle up under her arm and muzzle against the receiver. Listen, she would say, someone wants to talk with you. Isn't he an angel? And then she would hold the receiver down to him, and the young man at the other end would be dazed by a shattering series of yelps. This accomplishment appealed so much to Millicent that often she would not even bother to find out the name of the caller, but instead would take off the receiver and hold it directly to the black snout, so that some wretched young man half a mile away, feeling perhaps none too well in the early morning, found himself barked to silence before he had spoken a word. At other times, young men badly taken with the nose would attempt to waylay Millicent in Hyde Park when she was taking Hector for exercise. There at first, Hector would get lost, fight other dogs and bite small children to keep himself constantly in her attention, but soon he adopted a gentler course. He insisted upon carrying Millicent's bag for her. He would trot in front of the couple, and whenever he thought an interruption desirable, he would drop the bag. The young man was obliged to pick it up and restore it, first to Millicent, and then, at her request, to the dog. Few young men were sufficiently servile to submit to more than one walk in these degrading conditions. In this way, two years passed. Letters arrived constantly from Kenya, full of devotion, full of minor disasters. Occasionally, Millicent read the letters aloud to the dog. Usually, she left them unread on her breakfast tray. She and Hector moved together through the leisurely routine of English social life. Mothers began to remark complacently that it was curious how that fascinating played girl never got married. At last, in the third year of this regime, a new problem presented itself in the person of Major Sir Alexander Dreadnought Bart, and Hector immediately realized that he was up against something altogether more formidable than he had hitherto tackled. Sir Alexander was not a young man. He was 45 and a widower. He was wealthy, popular, and preternaturally patient. He was also mildly distinguished. He bore a war record of conspicuous gallantry. Millie's father and mother were delighted when they saw that her nose was having its effect on him. 
Hector took against him from the first, exerted every art which his two and a half years' practice had perfected, and achieved nothing. Devices that had driven a dozen young men to frenzies of chagrin seemed only to accentuate Sir Alexander's tender solicitude. When he came to the house to fetch Millicent for the evening, he was found to have filled the pockets of his evening clothes with lump sugar for Hector. When Hector was sick, Sir Alexander was there first on his knees with a page of the Times. Hector resorted to his early violent manner and bit him frequently and hard, but Sir Alexander merely remarked, I believe I am making the little fellow jealous. Ha ha ha! What a delightful trait! For the truth was that Sir Alexander had been persecuted long and bitterly from his earliest days. His parents, his sisters, his schoolfellows, his wife, and even his parliamentary private secretary had one and all pitched into Sir Alexander, and he accepted this treatment as a matter of course. For him it was the most natural thing in the world to have his eardrums outraged by barks when he rang up the young woman of his affections. It was a high privilege to retrieve her handbag when Hector dropped it in the park. The small wounds that Hector was able to inflict on his ankles and wrists were to him nightly scars. In his more ambitious moments, he referred to Hector and Millicent's hearing as, My little rival! Ha ha ha! There could be no doubt whatever of his intentions, and when he asked Millicent and her mama to visit him in the country, he added at the foot of the letter, Of course the invitation includes Hector! The Saturday to Monday visit to Sir Alexander was a nightmare to the poodle. He worked as he had never worked before. Every artifice by which he could render his presence odious was attempted and attempted in vain. As far as his host was concerned, that is to say, conduct that had driven Millicent in shame from half the stately homes of England was meekly accepted here. There were other dogs in the house elderly, sober, well-behaved animals at whom Hector flew. They turned their heads sadly away from his yaps of defiance, and Sir Alexander had them shut away for the rest of the visit. There was an exciting obscene carpet in the dining room, which Hector was able to do irreparable damage. Sir Alexander seemed not to notice. Hector found a carrion in the park and conscientiously rolled in it although such a thing was obnoxious to his nature, and in returning, fouled every chair in the drawing room. Sir Alexander himself helped Millicent wash him, and brought some bath salts from his own bathroom for the operation. Hector howled all night. He hid and had half the household searching for him with lanterns. He killed some young pheasants and made a sporting attempt on a peacock. All to no purpose. He staved off an actual proposal, it is true, once in the Dutch garden, once on the way to the stables, and once while he was being bathed. But when Monday morning arrived and he heard Sir Alexander say, I hope Hector enjoyed his visit a little. <laughs> I hope I shall see him here very, very often. He knew that he was defeated. It was now only a matter of waiting. The evenings in London were a time when it was impossible for him to keep Millicent under observation. One of these days, he would wake up to hear Millicent telephoning to her girlfriends, breaking the good news of her engagement. Thus, it was, after a long conflict of loyalties, 
he came to a desperate resolve. He had grown fond of his young mistress. Often, and often when her face had been pressed down to his, he had felt sympathy with that long line of young men whom it was his duty to persecute. But Hector was no kitchen-haunting mongrel. By the code of all well-born dogs, it is money that counts. It is the purchaser, not the mere feeder and fondler, to whom ultimate loyalty is due. The sacred words of commission still rang in Hector's memory. All through Sunday night and the journey of Monday morning, Hector wrestled with his problem. Then he came to the decision. The nose must go. It was an easy business. One firm snap as she bent over his basket and the work was accomplished. She went to a plastic surgeon and emerged some weeks later without scar or stitch, but it was a different nose. The surgeon in his way was an artist, and as I have said above, Millicent's nose had no sculptural qualities. Now she has a fine aristocratic beak, worthy of the spinster she is about to become. Like all spinsters, she watches eagerly for the foreign males and keeps carefully under lock and key a casket full of depressing agricultural intelligence. Like all spinsters, she is accompanied everywhere by an aging lapdog. I'm Weston, and today I'm going to read a book called Rotten Ralph. Written by Jack Ganthos, illustrated by Nicole Rupel. Ralph is Sarah's rotten cat, but Sarah loves him anyway. When Sarah practices ballet, Ralph makes fun of her. One afternoon when Sarah was swinging, Rotten Ralph sawed off the branch. The very next day, Ralph ruined Sarah's party. He had taken a bite out of everyone's, out of every one of her cookies. Sometimes you are very hard to love, Ralph, said Sarah. One day, Sarah's father came home, early from work. He caught Ralph sitting in his favorite chair. Ralph was wearing father's slippers and blowing soap bubbles through his best pipe. You are the worst, you are worse than rotten Ralph, said father. I wish you wouldn't upset father, Sarah said. The next evening, Ralph smashed his bicycle into the dining room table. Father became very angry. You better straighten up, Ralph, he said. You are a very difficult cat, Ralph said to said Sarah. After dinner, Ralph was still hungry. He chased mother's favorite birds. She was very unhappy with Ralph's behavior. One evening, the whole family went to a circus. Everyone was having a great time, but Ralph, a dog was barking in his ear. Be quiet said Ralph, but the dog didn't stop. He kept barking and stomping his paws on the seat. So Rotten Ralph tied some balloons to the dog's collar. The dog floated up the lion's cage. My dog shouted the owner, but not even the man on stilts could reach him. Then Ralph saw the trapeze. He swung and knocked over the tightrope walkers. Next, he jumped on a, on a show horse. He pudged the, the rider off and frightened the elephants. Rotten Ralph has gone too far this time, bellow, bellowed father. We are just leaving him here. A circus is just where he belongs, and they left him behind. When the circus closed at that night, the manager made Ralph sweep up all the popcorn. Then he had to water the camels. After that, he had to carry the barbells for the strongman. 
Next day, Rotten Ralph did not want to work. He refused to be the target for the knife thrower, so the circus tough men threw him in a cage. Everybody has to work around here, Buster, the tough guys said, and they locked the door. The monkeys laughed and threw banana peels at Ralph. The elephants shot peanut shells at him and squirted water on him. A week later, Ralph had grown very thin. He had only been been fed stale popcorn and rotten candied apples. That night, he decided to escape. Nobody heard him as he slipped between the bars. Ralph ran from the circus and found a place to sleep in an alley. During the night, he was awakened by gangs of mean and noisy cats. The rest of the night, he hid in the trash heap. He didn't dare make a sound, even though the mice were nibbling on his toes. In the morning, he was cold and sick. He had caught an alley fever from sleeping in the trash heap. I'm lonely, he thought, and he began to cry. He was sitting on a trash can when Sarah found him. Oh, Ralph, I still do love you, she said. She was happy. She hugged him and gave him a kiss on his cold nose. On the way home, she told him she had been looking for him everywhere. She asked him where he had been and what he had been doing. Even Sarah's mother and father were happy to see Ralph again. We have missed you, Ralph, they, they said. Ralph kept thinking about his soft bed and warm milk. He also thought about how nice it was to have a good friend like Sarah. Ralph decided never to be rotten again. Except for sometimes when mother cooked lobster for dinner. And I hope you guys enjoyed the story. I really like the story. My dad reads it for bedtime every day. So the end. I was introduced to David Sedaris by means of a show that I really enjoy, a radio show by the name of This American Life. David Sedaris has a really interesting perspective. I love how critical he is of the world around him and how it seems like from childhood he has been sitting in the audience of his life on record, just taking in information so that he can share it in a funny, interesting way. So here is a story about David Sedaris in his freshman year experiencing drama class for the first time. Here is Drama Bug by David Sedaris. The man was sent to our school in order to inspire us. And personally speaking, I thought he did an excellent job. After introducing himself in a relaxed and casual manner, he started towards the back of the room, only to be stopped midway by what we came to know as the invisible wall, the transparent barrier realized only by mimes, drug addicts, and certain varieties of rapid cycling psychotics. I sat enthralled as he righted himself and began investigating the imaginary wall with his open palms running his hands over the hard, smooth surface in hopes of finding a way out. Moments later, he was tugging an invisible rope, then struggling in the face of a violent, fantastic wind. You know you're living in a small town when you can reach the ninth grade without ever having seen a mime. As far as I was concerned, this man was a prophet, a genius, a pioneer in the field of entertainment. And here he was in Raleigh, North Carolina. It was a riot the way he imitated the teacher. 
turning down the corners of his mouth and rifling through his imaginary purse in search of gum and aspirin. Was this guy funny or what? I went home and demonstrated the invisible wall for my infant brother, who pounded at the very real wall beside his bed, shrieking and wailing in disgust. When my mother asked what I'd done to provoke him, I threw up my hands in mock innocence before lowering them to retrieve the imaginary baby which lay fussing at my feet. I patted the back of my little ghost in order to induce gas and was investigating its soiled diaper when I noticed my mother's face assume an expression she reserved for unspeakable horror. I had seen this look only twice before once when she was caught in the path of a charging rabid pig, and once again when I told her I wanted a peach-colored velveteen blazer with matching slacks. I don't know who put you up to this, she said, but I'll kill you myself before I watch you grow up to be a clown. You want a diaper a baby? Make yourself useful and wipe up the genuine article. She handed me my brother before turning to leave the room. Because I respected her opinion, I did as I was told, ending my career in mime with a whimper, rather than the silent bang I had hoped for. The visiting actor returned to the classroom a few months later, removing his topcoat to reveal a black body stocking worn with a putty-colored neck brace, the result of a recent automobile accident. This afternoon's task was to introduce us to the works of William Shakespeare, and once again I was completely captivated by his charm and skill. When the words became confusing, you needed only pay attention to the actor's face and hands to know that this particular character was not just angry, but vengeful. I loved the undercurrent of hostility that lay beneath the surface of this deceptively beautiful language. It seemed a shame that people no longer spoke this way. And I undertook a campaign to reintroduce Elizabethan English to the citizens of Raleigh. Perchance, fair lady, thou dost think me unduly vexed at the sorrowful state of thine quarters, I said to my mother as I ran the vacuum over the living room carpet she was inherently too lazy to bother with. These foul specks, the evidence of life itself, have sullied not only thine shag-tempered mat, but also thine character. Be ye mad, woman? Were it a crime to neglect thine dwellings? You, my feeble-spirited mistress, would hang from the tallest venerable tree in penitence for your shameful ways. Be there not linens to both launder and iron free of turbulence? See ye not the porcelain plates and hearty mugs waiting to be washed clean of evidence? Get thee to thine work damnable lady, and quickly, before the products of thine very loins, their collected fists in a spirit born of rage and indignation, forcibly coaxing the last breath from the foul chamber of thine vain and upright throat, go now, wastrel, and get to it. This time my mother, a high school dropout, was caught off guard. Members of her immediate family had done time in some serious mental institutions, and something suggested I might be next. I could tell by the state of my room that she spent the next day searching my dresser for drugs. The clothes I took pride in neatly folding were crammed tight into the doors with no regard for color or category. 
I smelled the evidence of cigarettes and noticed the coffee rings left on my desk. I loved my mother dearly, but mess with mine drawers and ye have just made thine self an enemy. Tying a feather to the shaft of my ballpoint pen, I quilled her a letter. The thing that ye search for so desperately risideth not in mine well-ordered chambers, but in the questionable content of thine own character. I slipped the note into her purse, folded twice and sealed with wax from the candles I now use to light my room. I took to brooding, refusing to let up until I received a copy of Shakespeare's collected plays, though just didn't provide the kick I'd hoped for. I found it more enjoyable to simply carry the book from room to room, occasionally skimming for fun words I might toss into my ever-fragrant vocabulary. The dinner hour became either unbearable or excruciatingly depending on my mood. Methinks, kind sir, most gentle lady, fellow siblings all, that this barnyard fowl be most tasty and succulent, having simmered in its own sweet juices for such a time as it might take the sun to pass, rosy and full-fingered across the plum-colored sky for the course of a twilight hour. Tis crisp yet juicy, this plump bird, satisfied in the company of such finely roasted neighbors. Hear me out fine revelations, and heed my words, for methinks it adventurous and fanciful too to saddle mine fork with both fowl and carrot at the exact same time, the twin juices blending together in a delicate harmony which doth cajole and enliven the tongue in a spirit of unbridled merriment. What say ye, fine fathers, sisters, and infant brother too, that we raise our flagons high in celebration of this hearty feast, prepared lovingly and with tender grace by this dutiful woman we have the good fortune to address as our wife, wench, or mother? My enthusiasm knew no limits, and as a result it quickly reached the point where my mother literally begged me to wait in the car while she stepped into the bank or the grocery store. I was at the orthodontist's office, placing a pox upon the practice of dentistry, when the visiting actor returned to our classroom. You missed it, my friend Lois said. The man was so indescribably powerful that I was practically crying. That's how brilliant he was. I can't describe it any better than that. She placed her chain in her hand and stared out the window into the parking lot. There's absolutely nothing left for me to say about it. Nothing. I could try to explain his realness, but you'd never be able to understand it. Lois and I had been friends for six months when our relationship suddenly took on a competitive edge. I'd never cared who made better grades or who had the most spending money. We each had our strengths. The important thing was to honor one another for the thing they did best. Lois complained better than I did, and I respected her for that. Her grotesque excess of self-confidence allowed her to march into school wearing a rust-colored afro wig, and I stood behind her 100%. She had more friends than I did, more records than I did, and because she was a year older she also knew how to drive a car and did so as if she were rushing to a fire. Fine, I thought. Good for her. I was genuinely happy for Lois until she questioned my ability to understand the visiting actor. I was the one who identified his brilliance in the first place. Me, not her. 
Sure, she'd been there beside me in the classroom, but she didn't even realize that it was an invisible wall until I told her. When he'd come in with his Shakespeare, she'd been just like the rest of them, laughing at his neck brace and rolling her eyes at him. Now she was telling me I couldn't understand him? Me think not. Honestly, woman, I said to my mother on our way to the dry cleaner, to think that this low-lying worm might speak to me of greatness as though it were a thing invisible to mine eyes is more than I can bear. Her words doth strike mine heart with the force of a punishing blow, leaving me both stunned and highly vexed too. Hear me, though, for I shall bide my time quietly and with cunning, striking back at the very hour she doth least expect it. Such an effort shall not go unchallenged. Of that you may rest assured, gentle mother. My vengeance will hold the sweet taste of the ripest berry, and I shall savor it slowly and with gusto. You'll get over it, my mother said. Give it a few weeks and the whole thing will blow over. This would become her answer to everything. She'd done some asking around and concluded that I'd been bitten by what her sister called the drama bug. My mother was convinced that this was just a phase like all the others. A few weeks of prancing and I'd drop show business just like I had the guitar and my private detective agency. I hated having my life's ambition reduced to the level of a common cold. This wasn't a bug, but a full-fledged virus. It might lay low for a year or two, but this little germ would never go away. It had nothing to do with talent. Rejection wouldn't weaken it, and no amount of success could ever satisfy it. The drama bug strikes hardest with people who, for one reason or another, desperately crave attention. I would later learn that it's a bad idea to gather more than two of these people in an enclosed area for any amount of time. Stage is not an actual place, but rather a state of mind related to one's whereabouts during the time you're not asleep. Audience defines anyone pausing long enough for you to interrupt. For a string of light bulbs left burning 24 hours a day, and as a result, our exhausted public soon stopped wondering what all the fuss was about. Well, we hope you enjoyed the show. And what a show it was. But we've arrived at that time. What time is that, Emily? It is about six or seven minutes until the end of our show. No, Emily, say it isn't so. Please. Oh, my. I can't handle it. Oh, goodness. I don't want it to end. <laughs> so loud you are. I'm sorry. Um that's why we started this whole show not because bobby is loud but because we all like stories we do so we thought we'd bring you some of the stories that we love that have inspired us to tell stories yeah that's right but you don't have to share in my sadness and grief in this show coming to an end 
because we're going to have a new show next week. All you have to do is wait about seven days. Yeah, hang in there. It'll come, and it's going to be great. Maybe sooner than you think. Maybe, who knows? Time is kind of relative. It is. It is relative. Um, time flies like an arrow. Yeah. And fruit fra- fly. Oh, boy. Let's try it again. Okay. <clears throat> time flies like an arrow, and fruit flies like a banana. <laughs> I'll have to agree with you there. I'll take your word for it. So, uh, yeah, if you stay tuned, you're going to hear another show, another original show by an original programmer. His name is Leo, and that show is High Tech Soul. You're going to enjoy it. I guarantee it. But until then, I want to leave you with one final thought. Lay it on us, Bobby. You know, we all have our own fairy tales to write. Not all of our fairy tales end with a knight in shining armor. Sometimes it ends with a forest troll or a fairy godmother. Whatever the case may be, write your own fairy tale and end it with and they lived happily ever after question mark I know that's how mine's gonna end so until next week we bid you adieu yeah always leave it open for a part two exactly and now we really bid you adieu (laughs) bye everyone sayonara my love is like a storybook story but it's as real as the feelings I feel My love is like a story